from launching our book with Good Catch Publishing. And uh, you've seen the banner up here. That's our actual book cover. That's not just a stock photo. Uh, the title of our book is Found, and so you can come and look at that. We have some posters as well we're putting up around town and here in the church. But <clears throat> we're getting close to launching our book. The title <clears throat> uh, is tied in with the overarching theme of the book, which is the fact that this church is made up of a bunch of real people who struggle just like everyone else in the world. Uh, but like Darren Lindley said in the video, the difference is we have found uh, what we were looking for. You know, being a follower of Jesus Christ is the ultimate answer to what is ailing this world. And that doesn't mean, of course, that as Christians we no longer have struggles, right? That would be a ridiculous assertion. We all know that we still struggle just like everyone else. And we have struggles in our relationships and in all kinds of circumstances and problems that we face. The difference for us is that we have the Holy Spirit living inside of us who reveals truth to us through His Word and through His voice. And so He guides us through the struggles and gives us strength to get through them, all the while teaching us how to become more like Him and directing us to teach that to others. And that's the beauty of the Christian life. We're not alone. We have a God who loves us and is ultimately in control. And we also have each other to share the journey with. And yet, at the same time, we can still relate uh, to those outside of the church because we wrestle with situations and circumstances and relationships just like they do. And our book is intended to tell people outside the church, to let them know that, uh, to inform them, the people in our city, hey... Uh, you guys that have no relationship with God, the upcountry church is full of people just like them. We want them to know that with one difference, that we're not alone in our struggles and they don't have to be either. In fact, the last impression that we want to give people outside of the body of Christ is that we've somehow achieved a problem-free life through a positive confession or faith in some kind of false gospel that guarantees health, wealth, and prosperity. Right? I, in fact, contend that the message of the gospel is communicated far more powerfully by watching true followers of Christ express their faith through their struggles than by watching those who never seem to have any. Of course, it's not that we desire hard times, right? Obviously not. We, we pray for God to bless and protect us and provide for us. And we know that He does because He loves us and, and He desires the very best for us. But there are times, obviously, when we do experience difficulty in life, either by our own doing or by the actions of others or sometimes even circumstances beyond our control. But God certainly allows us to experience hardship. And it is often in those tough times that Christ shines through us the brightest because those are the times that we come to rely on Him the most. And so people are watching. They're watching and they can see it. They see our dependence on Him and yet also the strength and peace and joy and determination that He brings in those most difficult times in our lives. And that speaks to people. That's why the stories that we read that build our faith the most and that testify most powerfully to the message of Jesus Christ are the ones that tell of people who continued to serve God through seemingly insurmountable struggles by placing all of their faith and trust in Christ in those hard times. And I think about Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the Christian pastor and theologian who's, uh, he chose to leave the comforts of New York City during the Second World War to travel to Nazi Germany to fight for the Jews. He was a man who ultimately gave his life in defense of the gospel and God's people. 
And I think about William Wilberforce, a very well-known, outspoken Christian activist who fought to abolish slavery in Britain against incredible opposition. It's an amazing story if you haven't read it. And then Nate Saint and the other four uh, American missionaries who were killed by native tribesmen in front of their wives and children in the jungles of Ecuador in 1956 during their attempt to bring the gospel to that native tribe. And they were murdered in front of their wives and their kids. And yet those families of those slain missionaries returned in spite of the obvious dangers to continue the work of their martyred fathers and husbands. Countless Christian martyrs of the early church and their willingness to give everything, including their own lives, for the sake of the gospel. Why do these stories stir us so much? Because it's one thing to profess faith and trust in Christ when everything is going our way. But it is something entirely different to live out that faith and trust in Christ in front of others who are watching us when everything seems to be falling apart. And this is what the world needs to see more of. Because people are hurting and suffering and they're looking for answers. And simply telling them that Jesus Christ will fix all of their problems is really far less effective as a witness to the gospel than actually showing them our faith being lived out as we experience good times and difficult times. And this is one of the keys to answering the often asked question, why do good people experience bad things? I get asked that a lot. Or why do Christians suffer? If God is truly sovereign over the world and everything in it, why does he allow us to experience hardship and difficulty in suffering? And that's our topic of discussion for this morning as we continue our sermon series, The Acts of the Apostles, with a message entitled, Why Me? A Christian Response to Suffering. Why me? Why am I going through this? Why is this happening to me? And you know what? The truth is, I believe it's good. I believe it's beneficial for us to ask that question. Anytime we experience real struggle in life, and of course not in the sense that we're simply complaining. We can say, why me? And not really have any desire for an answer to that question. We can, we can simply complain or whine about that. That doesn't do anyone any good. But when we ask the question sincerely, why me? and we genuinely seek an answer, that can be very helpful in any difficult circumstance because there is an answer to that question. It may not always be the answer we're looking for or hoping for. It may not come when we want it to. But knowing the answer to that question, why me? Why am I going through this? That can go a long way toward understanding the best way to respond to the situation that we happen to be in. And again, sometimes that answer doesn't come until much later. Sometimes it's years later. But even then, we can learn a lot about ourselves and about God and His plan for our lives once we understand the reason and the purpose for suffering that we've experienced through these difficult times. And it not only applies, by the way, to those really big life-altering events, you know, those times of real trouble in our lives, but so often even in the much less profound struggles that we experience, the, the seemingly less significant irritations and frustrations that can happen sometimes on a regular basis, those difficulties even can serve a very specific and useful purpose as well even though we don't always see it in the moment. You see, God is not a random God. There's nothing random about Him. Everything has a purpose. When we loaded up our car in Alaska to move back to South Carolina for the 5,000-mile journey down the Alcan Highway through Canada, which no one ever wants to drive on, 
It is a horrible road. It's rutted out. It's potholed. It's a terrible road. And we loaded up our Nissan Xterra and we hooked up a U-Haul trailer and crammed everything in it that we could. And many of you know Dina, single mom with two teenage kids. She moved back here with us uh, from Alaska to to help us start this church, Lifelong Alaskans. And they did. She she ran away with another minister. And no, in a good way. She got married to a guy in uh, Greenville, another pastor who's a friend of mine who was single. And uh, so she's not here at the church with us anymore. But so Dina was behind us and we're driving down the Alcan Highway, 5,000 mile trip. And we've got me and Mary Beth and our kids and this little Nissan Xterra pulling a U-Haul with Dina behind us. And somewhere about the Canadian Rockies in the Yukon territory of Canada in utter wilderness, the rear tire of my car blows out, of course. And so we pull over to the side of the road and I'm trying to get the trailer unhooked from my car and it won't come off. I can't get it loose. It's like it's welded on there. And we tried and tried and tried. And finally, I took Dina's jack and put it underneath the the trailer hitch, leaving the trailer connected. And I jacked up the trailer to take the pressure off my car so I could use my jack to jack up the car and put the spare tire on. And I did that. And then we limped the car into the nearest town which wasn't very big, uh, but we said, let's get a hotel and rest for the night and eat some dinner, and then the next morning, I'll deal with the tire issue early, and we'll get on our way, because we're on a tight schedule. And so we did that, and as we're pulling into our hotel, I look over, and I see this tire store right in front of our hotel, and it's like literally like the size of a Walmart, but all it is is a tire store. I've actually never seen a, a tire store that big. It's huge, and I said, well, this is a God thing. So we went in the hotel and we spent the night and I got up the morning and I drove over to the tire store and I went in and said, I need to get a tire for my car. And the guy said, sure. And I'm standing there and there's a big window in the waiting room that looks into the shop and there's six bays and they're completely empty. There's no one in the waiting room. I'm like the first one there. There's like 10 guys literally standing huddled around at one of the bays with McDonald's coffee, like talking. And I'm like, this is perfect. They're just getting started for the day. I'm the first one here. And so I said, about how long will it take to get my new tire put on? And he said, about a half an hour. I said, that's great. And so he said, well, pull it in here. I said, well, there's one thing. I have this trailer attached. I can't get it off. But you got all these guys and tools, so could you help me pop the trailer off the hitch? And he said, well, actually, no. We, I can't do that because we're liable if we damage something. Um, I said, okay, well, can you just jack up the side of the car and put the new tire on? He said, well, no, you need to get it off of there. I said, okay. So I went outside, and literally when I walked outside, the bottom fell out of the sky. And it's raining sideways, and it's a cold rain. And so there I am, no, no rain gear. I'm out in this, just getting drenched pulling and kicking and pushing and and wanting to blow up this trailer because I can't get it off my truck. Probably some non-Christian thoughts went through my head at that time. I was losing it. And I finally was able to jack up the trailer so high that it popped off the car and I got it loose. And so I drive the car into the bay and I said, okay, I need you to put the tire on. And he came out and looked at my car and he said, man, I'm sorry, we're gonna have to put four tires on your car. And I said, why? And he said, well, we can't mismatch tires and we don't have that brand. I said, look, brother, I have thousands of miles to go. I need you to just put a tire. I don't have the money for four tires. If you could just put a tire, I don't care if they're mixed. And he said, no, we can't do it. 
we have to put four tires on. I said, well, are there any tire stores in town that you know of that would give me one tire? And he said, yeah, actually, you go about 9.9 miles down the road on the left, there's a little tire store on a hill. And I said, okay, great. Can I leave my trailer here and I'll just get it and come back? And he said, well, no, you need to take the trailer with you. So I hooked this stupid thing back up and I go driving 9.9 miles and there's no tire store. And I'm driving back and forth and back and forth and back and forth and I can't find the tire store. I finally coming back to ask him again and literally two miles away from his store is the tire store he was describing. I have no idea why he told me he was nine miles away, but I'm really frustrated now. I pull into this other tire store and I walk in and said, can I, can I get one tire? And he said, yes. And I said, great. Yeah. Can you do it with the trailer on? And he said, no, you need to take the trailer off the car. So it's pouring down rain. I do this whole thing again. And he says, pull around back. I said, okay, how long is it going to take? And I, he said, it's going to take about a half an hour. And I said, okay, great. So I pull around back, and there are several bays, and there's an 18-wheeler blocking all of the bays. And I don't know. He said, they'll open the door and wave me in. And I wait for 45 minutes, and no one comes. So I get out and go back around through the rain into the store. And I said, hey, man, it's been like 45 minutes. Can you tell me what the deal is? And he said, well, yeah, this 18-wheeler, we can't get it in one of the bays. It's too big. We're trying to help the guy out. Um, he said, it's going to give me about another half an hour. And I said, Okay. So I went out and got in my car, and I wait for another 45 minutes. And I'm so angry at this point, I just start the car, and I drive away, hook up my trailer, and I leave. And I'm driving down the road, trying to figure out what to do, and I see, like a beacon in the night, or my, my light at the end of the tunnel, I see Walmart. I didn't even know they had Walmarts in Canada. It's a beautiful thing. And, of course, Walmarts are the same right everywhere. So can't go wrong with Walmart. So I drive around back to the tire center, and I go up, and I can't open the door, and I'm knocking on the door, and no one's coming. So I drive back around and go into the front of the store, and I said, can you tell me where the tire center people are? And she said, yeah, they're, they're probably on break. Just go back there and wait in the waiting room, and they'll tell you what to do. So I walk back there. And there's a little sign on the desk, and I kid you not, it says, we will be back in a half an hour. <laughs> I said, okay. So I sit there for much longer than a half an hour, and I go looking for a manager in the store, and I said, can you tell me when the tire center is going to be open? And he said, yeah, probably two more weeks. I said, what do you mean? He goes, it's closed for renovation. So I get back in my car. And now I'm about to lose my mind, and I drive back to the original giant tire store. And I walked in, and I said, for the love of God, will you please put one tire on my car? I have to get out of this nation and go back to America. And he said, I can't, I can't do it. And I said, I'll split the difference. Will you put, will you put two tires on my car? And he said, okay, I'll replace both the rear tires. And I said, okay. And then I went out and fought the trailer to get it detached. And I came back in, I pulled it in the bay, and I walked back in, and I said, can you tell me how long it's going to take? You got it. He said, about a half an hour. I said, okay, to be clear, is it going to take a half an hour for you to get to it? Or is it going to take a half an hour to do it? And he said, well, it's going to take a half an hour to get to it. I look over in the bay. There's still no one there. They're all still drinking coffee, right, hanging out. I said, okay, I'll just wait in the waiting room. He said, no, you know, there's no sense in doing that. He said, no, just take your car. And if you've got something to do, go get some breakfast and come back in about a half an hour. And I said, okay, well, you're going to put my name down on a list or something. He said, no, just come back in a half an hour. I said, well, but if I, if I wait a half an hour, 
and I come back and there are 10 cars here. Are you going to work on them before you work on mine? He said, well, of course. It's a first come, first serve basis. I said, look, apparently everything in this nation takes about a half an hour. So I'm going to go sit in your waiting room for a half an hour and just let you change my tires. Okay, I'm not going anywhere. And he said, okay, suit yourself. And then I sat down and literally about 20 minutes later, he comes in and the car's all fixed up and ready to go, which was great. I've now burned about a half a day, uh, but it was fixed and I was getting ready to leave. I'm checking out and he said, by the way, I just wanted to mention to you that your other tire that you didn't want replaced, he said, your front tires are good, but your other back tire, because of the weight of that trailer, is blistered all over. And he said, I'm telling you, if you had left here without replacing it, you're going to end up stranded in the middle of the wilderness down here a day or two away. Right? God knew we needed two tires. And I fought it all the way until I gave in. But had everything gone the way I wanted, we probably would have ended up stranded somewhere in the Canadian Yukon. There'd probably be an upcountry church right now in Yukon somewhere, <laughs> territory, because we were never going to get out of there. All right? Let's talk about Christian, the Christian response to suffering. Why me? Because I believe God is never random. There's a purpose for everything, even in the little things, okay? As we continue our story this morning, we're going to pick up where we left off last week in the book of Acts in chapter 16, starting on verse 25, if you want to turn there, and we'll have it up on the screen. Just to set the stage from last week, Paul and Silas are in Philippi. It's about 49 AD. Uh, Philippi was a Roman colony. It was a leading city in the district of Macedonia. And Paul and Silas have been falsely accused of stirring up trouble in the city. They've been brutally beaten and thrown into prison for nothing other than setting a little slave girl free from an evil spirit. And so we pick up the story at verse 25. And Paul and Silas are laying there chained to the floor in the middle of the night in the worst part of this crude first century prison. Their bodies are broken, uh, certainly hurting, probably very weak from the flogging that they'd received. And yet in the worst of circumstances, we see them choosing to praise and worship God. And in the middle of their impromptu worship service, which has captivated the other prisoners as well, something extraordinary happens. Okay, let's read it together. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the prisoners were listening to them, and suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. And so Paul and Silas are worshiping God, they're praying, they've been falsely accused. They've been stripped and beaten and imprisoned. They're mistreated in the worst way. And yet instead of groaning about their situation, instead of hurling angry insults toward those who've brought this horrible, undeserved misery on them, which they certainly would have been justified in doing by society standards, they instead choose to worship God and pray. When we read passages like this, I think sometimes we take for granted the response of these early believers because we've come to expect it from reading these stories over and over again. But if you take the time to really consider the appalling treatment and the injustice that was happening to Paul and Silas, their response is truly astounding. If I'm put on hold on the phone for too long when I call a business, 
if my service is really bad at a store or a restaurant, I find myself getting really irritated sometimes, even angry, if it's bad enough. And it makes me want to talk to a manager and complain. And the truth is we justify that kind of behavior because we've come to the point where we feel entitled to good service at a store or at a restaurant. We feel like we're owed good service. And I agree that if a particular business wants to stay in business, they'd better offer good service because people will generally only tolerate poor service for so long, at least in our culture. But just to put it in perspective, for a person, and particularly a believer, a Christian like myself, to get upset when I experience bad service is really kind of ridiculous. When you consider the fact that Paul and Silas have been beaten in the worst of ways and put in jail without a fair trial, and rather than complain, they're praying and singing songs to God. My opinion is that we, and I I include myself in this statement, should be far more grateful than we are, and far less concerned about the way we're treated. We should be far more grateful than we are for the amazing life that we're privileged to live and far less concerned about the way we're treated when we're at businesses or restaurants or tire stores because we're supposed to be grateful and we're supposed to represent Christ in every situation, even in the bad ones, right? And that's exactly what Paul and Silas were doing here. They're worshiping God even in the worst of times. And what was the effect of that? Well, the other prisoners were listening and it's no different with us. The world is watching us, and I hope that every one of you has an upcountry sticker on your car. But if you do, please don't scream and yell at people on the road when they cut you off or they tailgate you. Because the world is paying attention to how we act and how we react in situations in life, and particularly in difficult situations. Because we're supposed to be set apart. We're supposed to be different from the rest of the world. We're supposed to have the love of Christ coming out of us in good times, of course, and in hard times. Especially in hard times. But I have to be honest with you, it's not often what I see when I watch other Christians respond to difficult situations. It's not often what I see in myself when I respond to situations. And yet Jesus said, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, Matthew twenty-two thirty-nine. He said, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, Matthew five forty-four. He also said, greater love hath no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends, John fifteen thirteen. Laying down our lives for others includes laying down our rights for others. It includes laying down what we deserve for others. So the next time you feel your your blood pressure rising because someone says the wrong thing or treats you in a way that they genuinely shouldn't have, before you fly off the handle or talk to someone else about them, think about the example of Jesus Christ, the example of these early believers. And always remember the world is watching. They're watching us. They're listening to see how we respond to being mistreated, to see how we respond to hard times and to difficult situations and to suffering. And, and Paul and Silas, they were in this situation and yet they chose to pray and praise God instead of grumbling and complaining. The other prisoners were listening. They were paying attention and they were being ministered to as well, which we'll talk about more in a minute. But the guard was not. He was fast asleep. And all of a sudden there's this great earthquake and the guard wakes up and he realizes that all the prison doors have opened. So he prepares to take his own life as such was the course of action for a Roman guard who lost prisoners in that day because for a Roman jailer, 
to lose his prisoners was the most disgraceful thing that could happen. So if he wanted to regain his honor, he would fall on his own sword. Okay, So the act of committing suicide uh, in those circumstances for a Roman guard was actually not an act of cowardice in that culture. It was a heroic act of personal sacrifice to gain his, fam- uh, his honor back for himself and for his family. And so here he is, and he's ready to do the honorable thing. And Paul intervenes. Okay, let's keep reading. Verse 28 says, But Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we're all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Okay, so Paul and Silas, not to mention all of the other prisoners, have a golden opportunity to escape this terrible situation that they're in. In fact, they wouldn't necessarily be wrong to get up and run out of that prison were it not God's will for them, at least in this instance, to stay. And then people will invariably say to that, well, they stayed because even though they were wrongly accused, it would have been wrong for them to flee prison because they knew they had to submit to the local authorities, right? A a Christian wouldn't escape from prison even given the opportunity, which sounds great, except that back in chapter 12, when Peter's in prison... He gladly jumps up and runs out in the middle of the night, right? By the way, as the angel of the Lord leads him to. This was a God-sanctioned jailbreak for Peter. So clearly it wasn't on Christian principle that Paul and Silas refused the opportunity to escape. So what was it? Why stay instead of running? If it was good enough for Peter to escape, then why not Paul and Silas, let alone all the other prisoners, right? The answer to this question is the answer to the question that we started with today. Why me? What is the purpose of suffering for the, for the Christian? The reason that Paul and Silas stayed in that prison and the reason, or excuse me, the purpose that we suffer is so that the gospel may advance. And then people say, well, wait a minute. What about sin? Sometimes people suffer because of sin, right? What about our fallen world? Sometimes people suffer simply because we live in a fallen world. What about the sovereignty of God? Sometimes people suffer because there's a grand scheme, a plan for the world that we don't always have all the details for. Well, those are all true. But those are actually all reasons for suffering, not the purpose of our suffering. And there's a difference. Okay, We experience difficulty and hardship and and suffering for different reasons. Sometimes as a result of our own sin, yes. Sometimes it's because of the sin of others, yes. Sometimes simply because we live in a really messed up, sinful world and not because of any sin that we personally committed. Yes, those are all true. There are many different reasons that we experience suffering, and that's another sermon for another day. But the purpose of our suffering is the advancement of the gospel of Jesus Christ. If a person is suffering because of sin in their own life, the consequence of that sin, the suffering that we experience, is intended to bring us to a place of repentance and restoration through Jesus Christ, which means the gospel advances in our own life. Jesus and the apostles performed many amazing miracles of healing and deliverance, and obviously those people who received the miracles were suffering up to that point, right? But if you really look at the miracles that were performed throughout the New Testament, what you find is the vast majority of them were performed formed as a sign to unbelievers. In other words, people who were suffering were healed and delivered so that the gospel could advance in the lives of others who witnessed those miracles and certainly also to those who were receiving the miracles as well. The point is God has a purpose 
in all things. He's not a random God. He has a purpose in all things and he works all things together for our good. We read that in Romans 8, 28. I don't believe that God allows anyone to suffer needlessly. In other words, for no reason at all. And I understand it's not that he wants us to suffer either. Sin was the, sin was the doing of mankind, not God. We chose the way of pain and suffering, not God. Had sin never entered the world, there would be no suffering. Mankind made that choice. How many times in our own lives now, knowing what is right and wrong, do we willingly choose to do what is wrong? God doesn't want us to suffer, but He knows that we will for many different reasons, which are ultimately all associated with sin, whether our own sin, the sin of others, or the fact that uh, sin tainted the world that we live in after it was created. But it is not His desire to watch us suffer, and yet in our own free will, when we choose to respond to Him favorably in the midst of our suffering, He works that suffering toward a greater purpose, which is the advancement of the gospel in our lives and in others' lives. If you look at suffering throughout Scripture, you see a pattern develop out of those instances of hardship that is intended to advance the gospel. And of course, not everyone chooses to respond to suffering righteously, and therefore the best outcome of suffering, if I can put it that way, isn't always achieved. But God's purpose for allowing people to suffer and experience difficulty of all kinds in the end is for the advancement of the gospel. Israel suffered that they would come to repentance to be restored back to God. Job was said to be a blameless man and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. So clearly there are times that we suffer and it has nothing to do with anything that we did wrong. It wasn't because of Job's own sin that he suffered. Rather, he was allowed to suffer, or some would make the case God caused it, uh, for a greater purpose. That the truth of God, His sovereignty, and the redemptive plan of Christ for mankind might be proclaimed to the world. The advancement of His gospel over all time. He's a type of Christ. Likewise, we see throughout the New Testament, including these passages that we're reading today, the suffering of God's people served to advance the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because God has a sovereign purpose in everything. Nothing is random with him. Let's, let's keep reading. Verse 30. It says, Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. He was baptized at once, he and all his family. And then he brought them up into his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. What a beautiful picture this is of the transformation that takes place in the human life when one truly experiences the forgiveness and redemption of Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit that enters their life in that moment of salvation. This jailer, probably a fairly hardened individual, right? This was no job for the faint of heart. Day in and day out, dealing with criminals in a very harsh environment. Just moments before, he's charged with securing and guarding Paul and Silas in the worst way. He has them locked down tight, and here he is, a truly changed man. We don't see him merely pray a prayer of salvation and then continue on about his business. No, this tough, hardened soldier is now dressing the wounds of his prisoners and feeding them in his own house. 
He's caring for them like their honored guests. This is the gospel at work at its best, totally transforming the life of a man and his family. When Paul says, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, in verse 31, the word believe in the, the original Greek language is pistuo, which is a verb. It's an action word that means to trust in Jesus or God as able to either uh, aid in obtaining or in doing something. It's saving faith. It's why Jesus said a healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Matthew seven eighteen. There's an expectation that when we're truly following Jesus Christ, what comes out of our lives will reflect that change, that transformation in everything that we do. That's what it means to believe in Jesus Christ. It's an action. It's not a state of mind, okay? And that's what we see happening here in the Philippian jailer's life, okay? But let's get back to the point of suffering. When, when Peter was in prison back in chapter 12, in what was in many ways a very similar situation. Peter was innocent, but thrown into prison by Herod and heavily guarded. Why did the Lord have Peter miraculously freed? Right? We know that Herod had just killed James, the brother of John, and was most likely planning to do the same thing with Peter. And if Peter had been killed that night, as was the plan, his ministry of the gospel would have ended right then and there. Paul's situation was a bit different in that he and Silas were actually ministering the gospel to other prisoners as they listened to them pray and sing praises to God. And even though verse 26 says, all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened, unfastened they all stayed. Remember, in verse 28, Paul told the jailer, do not harm yourself, for we are all here. Not one of the prisoners left when they had the chance and I personally believe the reason they didn't get up and run out is because they knew that the power of what was happening inside that prison that night through Paul and Silas was far greater than anything happening outside of that prison. Those prisoners were experiencing the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so even when the prison doors flew open and their shackles fell off, they stayed right where they were. But the work of the gospel wasn't finished in that jail yet. Because the jailer was asleep when Paul and Silas were praying and singing. And so Paul and Silas stayed because the Holy Spirit had more work for them to do right there, right then. And of course we see the result of that as the jailer and his family come to Christ. Okay? Peter was delivered from prison so the work of the gospel could continue. Paul and Silas remained in prison so the work of the gospel could continue. Can you see how sometimes we may be delivered from our suffering for the sake of the gospel, and other times we may remain in our suffering for some period of time for the sake of the gospel? We don't always understand the circumstances or duration of our suffering. Uh, there's no indication in the entire book of Job that he ever really understood exactly why the reason his suffering came about. But we can know assuredly that God has a purpose in everything. And he can and will use everything in our lives, even the difficult parts, for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ. If we allow him to be Lord over our lives, which means he's Lord over the good times and he's Lord over the bad times. If we allow Him to work in us in every situation, He will ultimately work all of that together for, for our good and for His glory. And by the way, I mean for our good, not necessarily for our comfort. You know, Job, at the beginning of the story, loses his sons and daughters. And the way you read the story 
it's like all tied off nice and happy at the end when his property was restored back to him. But I'm sure the pain and the reality of that loss didn't go away the moment his property and relationships were restored. And the story ends. In fact, I imagine Job carried that pain for the rest of his life. Okay, to be clear, suffering in our lives doesn't always have a happy ending. Not in this life. That is a reality of the fallen world that we live in. Children, innocent children die in car wrecks, right? Bad things happen. There's not always a happy ending in our suffering. The point is, though our suffering is never pointless, God is not random. God can and will use our suffering to advance the gospel as we respond to Him in His will rather than our own. And sometimes that will mean immediate deliverance from a difficult circumstance. And sometimes it won't. The key is to seek God and respond to His voice and His leading in that situation, which is exactly what we see happening with Paul and Silas in these last few verses of our text today. Okay, so let's read it together, starting at verse 35. But when it was day, the magistrate sent the police, saying, Let those men go. And the jailer reported these words to Paul, saying, The magistrates have sent to let you go. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. But Paul said to them, They have beaten us publicly, uncondemned men who are Roman citizens and have thrown us into prison. And do they now throw us out secretly? No. Let them come themselves and take us out. The police reported these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. So they came and apologized to them, and they took them out and asked them to leave the city. So they went out of the prison and visited Lydia, and when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. I have to admit that for a long time when I read this passage, I used to think that Paul was just really ticked off at the, the poor treatment he'd received, and he wanted to kind of shame the authorities, right? He was ticked off at the waitress, and he wanted to call the manager and complain, right? By making them realize he was a Roman citizen and force them to come down and apologize to them. Because it seems like if I was in that situation and the jailer said, you can go, I couldn't get my Nikes on fast enough. I'd be running out of that place, right? And so for a long time, I thought, well, Paul was just really angry at what had happened to him to the point that he was willing to stay and fight with the magistrates about his treatment. And yet it seems to be contrary to his disposition concerning the whole event leading up to this point, which is what sort of vexed me about this passage. In other words, if he's mad about what happened now, that they're trying to free him, why wasn't he mad before? Why don't we see him complaining to the jailer about being a Roman citizen and challenging the authorities then? Why wasn't he demanding a meeting with the magistrates while he was in jail from the beginning? His behavior seems to have drastically shifted from the night before when he was in jail, praising God and ministering the gospel to everyone there. Well, it turns out I was totally misreading what was actually going on. And so, as is often the case, if we dig a little deeper, a much clearer picture of the situation presents itself. Paul's demand to have the magistrates come down to the jail themselves and resolve the matter with him and Silas publicly had nothing to do with Paul wanting to feel personally vindicated for his own sense of righteous anger or pride. Roman society in the first century was all about order and law and organization, and Paul knew that well. For Paul to be seen as a lawless troublemaker would have totally inhibited any future witness that he may have had in that city. So it was critically important for Paul, and particularly for the message of the gospel, to advance, to be able to clear his good name, 
as a representative of that gospel. Paul wasn't concerned for himself. He was concerned for the public reputation of the gospel message and for the good standing of the new church that was just established in Philippi. He's demanding public vindication at this point. Yes, but as far as the, the general public in Philippi was concerned, Paul and Silas were troublemakers. They were lawbreakers, which would have potentially become a great barrier to the progress of the gospel there and in the church for years to come. So Paul wants it to be abundantly clear in public that a mistake was made by imprisoning them so that he could return to the church later. He wanted to be able to come back in good standing and minister at the church. And the people there, he needed them to understand that the gospel message, which Paul represented, was not a threat to Rome. On the contrary, the gospel message was the answer to all of society, including Roman society. And because Roman law forbade scourging or imprisoning a Roman citizen without a formal hearing, Paul said, hey, we need to clear our names, not for his own sake, but for the sake of the gospel to be able to advance in that city. I'm, I'm sure that Paul's preference would have been to get out of there and away from the jail as, as fast as possible. But once again, we see deference given to the gospel message even in Paul and Silas's suffering, that was the way of Paul. He never thought about himself. He was always thinking about the advancement of the gospel message. And so that's why this never made sense to me. But do you see, he wasn't thinking about himself. He was thinking about the church in Philippi and the gospel going forward. The message of the gospel always came first. Okay? The truth is, we're all going to experience hardship at times in our lives. I don't have to tell you that. And although we cannot predict the intensity or the duration or the outcome of that hardship, we can know unwaveringly that God has a purpose in all of it. And that ultimately that purpose serves to advance the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so when we suffer and when we struggle and when we lay in bed awake at night and wonder what's going on, go ahead and ask Him the question, Why me? I think it's good to be honest with God and say, I don't understand this. Why me? And it's totally acceptable, by the way. And it's good to ask Him to deliver you from that struggle and that circumstance and that suffering. And in James 4, 2, James says, You do not have because you do not ask. Which was intended to be a reminder by James to the believers that sometimes the reason they lack is because of prayerlessness. We don't always pray and ask God for what we need as we should. It always surprises me when people come in with serious issues in their life for counsel. And I ask them, how, how, how much time are you spending in prayer about this? And they say, well, I haven't prayed about it yet. Always make your first approach to suffering one of prayer. Asking the Lord for clarity and guidance. And yes, certainly for deliverance and healing and provision and safety and resolution for whatever the need is. But beyond that, if he doesn't lift the burden, if, if the struggle remains, then our posture should always be to say, Lord, I want to honor you in everything, even in this struggle. And so please show me how to advance your purposes, your word, your will, your gospel through this struggle. And if, if that is his sovereign choice to allow you to remain in that hardship for some period of time, then he will give you the grace and strength to endure it and the opportunities to honor Him and His gospel in that process. It doesn't mean it'll be easy, but He will give you the strength to endure. And please believe me when I say, please believe me when I say this, I don't make these st statements lightly to you, okay? 
I know well that some of you today are going through tremendous difficulties uh, that no one could possibly imagine that hasn't been through it themselves. And so the very last impression that I want to give you today is that of some kind of smug preacher with all the answers to your pain and struggles. I don't have all the answers. But I know that our God does. And I know that He loves you beyond what any of us could possibly fathom. And I know that even in the midst of that struggle and the pain and the hardship, He has a plan for you to use you in powerful ways to advance the gospel. And I know that in the end, He's working all of it together for your good because He loves and cares for every single moment of your life. So please don't lose hope. Don't try to walk the path alone. You're not alone. God has not abandoned you, and He never will. He loves you. I love you. This church loves you. And together, we can and will, we will advance the kingdom of God through the gospel of Jesus Christ in our good times and in our bad times. Okay? Let's pray.